0: Hello, hello, Amal. What? This is the second um, book club aunt by the Scrivers' Feast. And i praat talking Afrikaans and i an Americaner on my left side, while ex- i So I'm going to It is for me an enormous Sorry. pleasure and <laughs> privilege to welcome Alexandra Fuller here with us on stage tonight. Um, she comes from... Jackson in Wyoming she flew I think 48 plus 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 hours straight to, to get here she's been resting she's been meditating she's been becoming her own self in the past <laughs> week in Stellenbosch and now she's here full of energy, full of smiles and on langs my, one of my absolute ginsling scrivers, and I think one of the best stakeholders by both the scrivers is Ingrid Winterbach so Bye, welcome. Bye, thank you. Thanks, Elari.
1: I wonder. I think I'm going to start just with a with a list of your of your books. Um, 2001, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, a memoir. 2004, Scribbling the Cat. Um, That's reportage, isn't it? Then 2008, The Legend of Colton H. Bryant, also reportage. Mm Then 2011, Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness, a memoir. 2015, Leaving Before the Rains Come, also a memoir. And then 2017, the first novel, Quiet Until the Thaw. Right
2: feels like an indictment, all those memoirs. <laughs> Why? Why? I put the moi into memoir, I think it's fair. When you read it out like that.
1: I don't think so. Right. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to focus, I'm going to start off uh, by focusing on two of the memoirs. Uh, don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight and Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness. I would like to know how you go about writing a memoir. What what aids, what memory aids did you use? Um, it's incredibly. Well, every single one of the memoirs is incredibly rich in detail. Um, how do you remember? How did you remember the smells, the sounds? In fact, I wonder if you don't want to immediately start off to read something, <laughs> just to put people into the into the into the book. Um, okay. Pay. Well, you're
2: finding that. Thank you for having me, Al Marie. Thank you so much, Stellenbosch. I am restored and repaired. I love it here so much. I'm walking very slowly around Pick and Pay because I hope someone kidnaps me. So my mom said when I was little if you go around the grocery store slowly someone someone will kidnap you so Stellenbosch pick and behave I just I would just want to let you know I'm there and I also have to say Almarie I mean listen there are many problems in the world we could use you so if you maybe spend a month in like you know sorting out the arab israeli conflict and then you could come and do gun control in the states because if you can pull off This, in a hundred-year drought, we're fine. We just need to clone you. Thank you so much.
1: Right. Back to the book. You are small. Your mom is a a reservist. How do you say that? A A
2: reservist. A reservist. reservist.
1: Right. You go with her to Salisbury and... Um, okay, read that, the bit that I've... Yeah, it's eyeball-burning it's eyeball hot.
2: And down to there? Yes. Gosh, I haven't read this in so long. Mm-hmm. Wow, man. Okay, good thing I've been meditating. It's eyeball-burning hot. I lie on my belly and let my legs wag lazily back and forth, my head in the crook of my arms where my forehead is pressing a sweaty band into the skin there. Mum is reading to herself. It's so hot that the flamboyant tree outside cracks to itself, as if already anticipating how it will feel to be on fire. The dogs are splayed out on the floor, wherever they can find bare cement, panting and creating wet pools with their dripping tongues. Our throats are papered with the heat. We sip at cups of cold, milky tea, just enough to make spit in our mouths, the sky and air are so thick with wildfire smoke that we can't see the hills. They are distant, gauzy shapes, the same color as the haze, only denser. The color is hot, yellow-gray, breathless, breath-sucking color. Swollen clouds, scrape, purple. I, you know what, I can't read this, it's so awful. This is it awful. <laughs>
1: you want me to read it?
2: No, I just... I mean, I, please drink your wine. Quickly, I... I'll finish this, but how did this get past an editor? Okay. Wow, I write better now. The color is hot. I, I can't. I, I'm sorry. Shall I finish? No, I, I think that might be worse.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. It's my valium. Okay, right? Um, we'll, we'll move on to sound. Yeah, <laughs> And I'll just read a little bit. You want me to read, rather?
2: You'll probably get through it without throwing up. I can't.
1: I'll just read. Um, I'll just read a few lines. Okay. In the I'll hot, slow here. time of day, when time and sun and thought slow to a dragging, shallow, pale crawl, there is the sound of heat. The grasshoppers and crickets sing and whine. Drying grass crackles. Dogs pant. There is the sound of breath and breathing of an entire world collapsed under the apathy of the tropics. At, and at four o'clock, when the sun at last has started to slide west and cool waves of air are mixed with the heat, there is the shuffling sound of animals coming back into action to secure themselves for the night. Is that okay?
2: You know, you ask why I could write with so much detail. Yes. Because I loved yes. it so much and I miss it. When you read it, what I hear is somebody, I was 29 when I wrote it, and I'd left, uh, I'd been out of Zambia four years then. And there wasn't, I didn't realize this, but it would have been a much more honest marriage vow if I'd said to my husband, yeah, ish, forever-ish with you, but my real love, my heart, where I will wake up every morning... And it will be my first thought, will be my children and the land. And that is something you don't hear until you meet another, for me, another Southern African. And I say, you don't, you don't need to explain, it's just there. It's, this is a deep longing. And I think also my memories were, it came out of such a, yeah, a loneliness for all of it, you know, for the ancestors, for the soil, for the people, for the sound of people, for the chaos. I think that's why I came here and I could sleep 16 hours, honestly. Um, I must resonate at this. I must resonate when there's a hundred year drought and the whole thing's on a brink and it's all going to go out. I look like I've had Botox, it really suits me.
1: But the thing is, even, even, even if I longed for a place and I missed it, I wouldn't be able to remember
2: Oh, well, there, my near-death experience helped. In fact, I mean, having a near-death experience every day, I think, really sharpened my mind. I Honestly, I... my <laughs> I, It was this... It, I... Do you know, I was married to the same person for 20 years, and I couldn't tell... He's American. And this is what they specialize in in America. I couldn't... From the East Coast. I couldn't tell... If we were having the worst time of our lives, or the best, like his expression never changed. And so for twenty years, I mean, honestly, I was just—you can't divorce someone for this—but I was really bored. And after, and I realized afterwards, I mean, I, once I sort of wrote the memoir that I had been raised in with so my parents were so care—I mean, they're not in the room. Because my dad's dead and I know my mom's not here, so I'll just say this and hope no one shoots me on their behalf. But they were terrible parents. And,
1: I, but, I agree.
2: Completely fascinating people and so land attached. And I think, you know, for me, the experience of. I mean, has anyone had no idea who I? This suddenly occurs to me. No one has no any idea who I am. I'm just rambling on, this insane woman. I think
1: I think most people here you have read the book. Yes. Okay, good. So you yes, like, are not like, does anyone
2: here calling, what the hell is she talking about? Oh, someone is. Oh, Ben, okay, good, phew. But I think the thing that it, what it did in a way was make a writer of me. The other piece that came to me was I had a very rural upbringing. And what it meant was that at seven, and I know this must be the experience of other people here who were raised in rural settings and then sent away to boarding school, it split me. And not in the half, that would have been neat and probably a bit more painless, It split me in some rough, unidentifiable way, and it was a deep loss for me. It was, as Alan Payton said, you know, cry the broken tribes, cry the tradition, cry the culture, cry the beloved country, it's not yet left, and for me going to boarding school was uh, amputation of the beginning of a knowledge that I would then be out of touch with because I had a very anglican very i mean for god's sake i did four years of latin and i had boiled fish every friday it was that education and what got lost and sort of pushed on the side was i would go back to the farm every 3 months and and those long gaps you know away from the farm what i was losing was my access to language and my access to this other world that I found my way back to in the novel, which was, is a world of ancestors and totem and ceremony, and where time isn't this linear thing. You know, I never lost that, and it's made me an outsider forever because although I look to anyone else, if you just saw me in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, like a middle-aged American housewife, inside I'm not that. I'm split. And that, of course, does something to your memory because you're conscious always of being an outsider. And so you aren't just a participant. You're also a voyeur in a way. Um, And it's, I believe, a stage of sort of development of a writer um, to arrive at a place where you learn to get comfortable where that split is.
1: It's interesting that you never use the term split. You never say it that like that in, in any of the memoirs.
2: Well, no, because I think that's like asking someone, um, you know, which piece of you feels Zimbabwean, which piece of you feels American, which piece of you feels British. I mean, I don't know. Uh, the piece that I've learned to speak with, I know, I mean, it's that ancient instruction, but it's such a... Important one, Noske te Ipsum, know yourself. I mean, and I think when you're from white settler stock and British, knowing yourself, um, it might be why, you know, I'm 50 and I've written I, something like four memoirs. I mean, it's ridiculous. I haven't even had that much of an interesting life. I mean, 20 years of that, you can wipe out. That was with the boring American. So, I mean, essentially, four memoirs. <laughs> It's like
1: two a decade. Yeah, but the 20 <laughs> years you had without the American.
2: Very exciting.
1: Made up for that. <laughs> yeah. I think you probably needed a, something boring. A bit of a break. Yeah. Yes. I, so did he. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anne Enright wrote uh, the introduction to, to this edition of Don't Let's Go to the Dogs. And she says... Dogs is full of the... I'm just going to call it dogs now. Go. Uh, Dogs is full of the sheer bloody enjoyment of being alive. But I think... I don't know what you think about it, but I think you had a very violent childhood. Yes. So how do you feel about her saying that... Phew! you are dropping in. Okay. Um,
2: I need my shrink and my meditation mat. (laughs)
1: Remember, you can say pass, no, don't. No, thank you. I,
2: <laughs> wow. Um, you know, first of all, I want to, you to hear this, that everything I say, I say with love. Oof. Because we are in such a hard moment right now, everywhere. And I think it's important to remember that all I have done for 49 years is think. I got born with a bloody oversized brain, no chin, and I'm really neurotic because I'm British.
1: You're Scottish.
2: The Scottish blood can't, I know, but not enough of it to cancel out the English blood. (laughs) (sighs) I had such a violent childhood and it was so unprotected. And the reason, oh God, this is so hard to say. Okay, I'm just gonna say it. Is there a concealed carried weapon thing here in Stellenbosch like there is in Wyoming? No. Here's what I want to say. The narrative that I was raised under, that being white was somehow uh, a superior way of being, that was more violent than any war, any land takeover, any any bloody divorce lawyer, Any assignment I've ever, I've slept on a minefield in Angola, it was a piece of cake compared to the violence of that narrative that insisted on this thing that turned out to be untrue. And the insistence on that narrative went above the protection of us children. And I'm going to really drop in. This may require, people can leave if they need to, because this was the crux of a very deep old wound. And it took me so long to get here. You know, it's as if in the inside of me there was a fist I could never, ever really talk about. And it's because I didn't have the language. And then this hashtag "MeToo" movement came along. I don't even have a phone and I know what it is. And it gave me language for something that happened a very long time ago. And then I knew I was coming here and a whole... Story came into my head that I couldn't shake, and if I don't tell it here, I'll never tell it anywhere. So I say this with love. When I was six, somebody who fought alongside with my father in the war, an Afrikaans guy by the name of Fani, by yeah, oh, okay. There was an incident that happened. Do you need me to stop? Okay, there was an incident that happened, and I write about it in Dogs. Not Farney Forster, Farneyville June, which one? Fanny June? Oh my God, okay, no, different, different one. Okay, oh, oh we need to talk afterwards. This. So, this isn't about the death of my sister. Um, I was molested by this man, and afterwards, his son became neighbors with my friends. And I was six, you know, I tried to tell my parents there was complete silence about this. And I went on, other things happened. And I, uh, my father died three years ago, and it changed everything. I mean, you know, when the moon falls out of the sky, it was as if everything vanished for me. The land was gone. I mean, the baobab tree that he is buried under, I will believe, is forever sacred, but I don't know if I go back there to see it. I don't know if it's mine. And the catastrophe of that set into motion a grief for all these things happened, and it somehow landed on the moment of this molestation, which was really nothing. An old man took a little girl in a bedroom and groped her, but it stole my soul until I realized you know, I keep talking and talking about cycles of violence. And the reason why we never unpacked and addressed that there was so much you know, molestation going on and so much violence was that the bigger narrative needed to be was that if we were white, this isn't what was happening. And I know that had that same thing happened and the perpetrator being of color being a black man, You know, I would have been somehow a poster child of of why we were fighting this war. And that was really the violence, was the narrative, and the bigger one that denied that in 1905, the British did what they did. And that we never addressed that. We never, ever had that conversation. Um... As a community, I mean, we were born into such a complicated, brutal past and given it as if it was an entitlement with no history and no context. And I think it made of us a very broken, uh, very disturbed people. And I know... I can only speak for how it affected my family, and so I wrote about it with love and humor because that is. I mean, that has to be uh, the place that you come from. But yeah, at the bottom of all of that, I think is an underpinning of violence that we are still coming to terms with in Zimbabwe, Um, and it's been thirty years, and Mugabe is gone. But you know, I think those stories, the the our original wound there was so much violence and competing violence. <laughs> Everyone have another sip of wine. Thank Thanks. you for listening. It takes courage, I
1: think, to both say this and to and to hear it. Alexandra, I want to I want to respond actually in, 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 in two ways. Firstly, I think I suspect... Oh, gosh, something's happening here. <coughs> I suspect that, that maybe um, other readers would be in, in, in America and wherever would be less shocked maybe and less disturbed by the white supremacist, mm-hmm. supremacist because it is our reality as well. At my, the, my generation's, not my child's, but my generation's, so the violence of that, yes, absolutely. But the violence I was also thinking of was an emotional violence. Your parents lost three children, but they didn't seem to be very careful about your, your safety. Um, you had worms, you had snotty noses, You were drinking and smoking at a very early age, very, very early. She sounds like my headmistress, man. (laughs) i I'm not admonishing you. I'm a little bit in awe, actually, that anybody could have survived so much drink. You had flea bites, you had malarial incidents, you had incredible, you had enormous freedom. Yeah. That is in itself quite astonishing, actually. I think
2: that's what saved
1: me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to, you want me to read? Yeah, please, okay. God.
2: It's such an awful book. My mother was right. <laughs> <laughs> My dad really regretted sending me to school. He was like, I, it was fine till they taught you to write.
1: <laughs> in those days i explored the ranch it's interesting for me that you use the word ranch is that for the for an american public no it was uh, a much leadership. bigger than the farm or because was, we uh, we we would refer to it as a farm not a ranch no matter how big no farm it's always farm am i right we don't the, the word ranch i think is very much an american word Anyway, be that I feel as a admonished now. Am I, I? I just got admonished. No, I just here. thought this. It was. Um, it was meant for an American readership.
2: Oh no, no. So we, um, the, really in the lowveld in Zimbabwe, they that when it gets to sort of seven hundred and fifty thousand acres, now that's a ranch, and you don't farm it. There was no, you couldn't plant anything because it never rained.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right. I explored the ranch that as, as if I were capable of owning its secrets as if its heat and isolation and hostility were embraceable friends. I covered the hot, sharp, thorny ground of the ranch on horseback, foot, and bicycle, ignorant of her secrets and fearless of her taboos, as if these ancient native constraints did not apply to me. Mm. Um, It's absolutely, it is really for me astonishing the way you could actually go, basically wherever you wanted to go. Right. I mean, on horseback, I presume, we I can know. go very far.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, it, I don't think until I became a mother, not of, I, when I wrote this book, I had little kids, they were eight and four, but I think, look, it took until my father died for me to look back and go, oh, my dear God, what were you thinking? Uh, this was insane. It was so undefended and so unexplained. And I think the combination of that, I mean, it also, that's what made me a writer because I think, you know, that split that I was talking about and then this, the way we were so undefended, I've never stopped asking questions. Why did we never, what, <laughs> some of it has to do with being English, but it struck me that the things that we needed to be talking about were forbidden, absolutely forbidden. We couldn't talk about, yeah, we weren't even allowed to really bring up the war, even though that was really happening outside our front door. And the causes for it, it just was there. It was like the weather system. So was everything. It was just the weather system. And we were so encouraged to be seen and not heard and shut up and be good at school. And I think there really was this way in which that, for me, completely um, you know happened at the same time as this insane amount of freedom Uh, and connection to the land. And that really, I think, saved me.
1: But what were you allowed to talk about?
2: Absolutely nothing, honestly. I mean, I learned uh, every... It was such a... I mean, my mother was really from the age of when I was about 11 after she lost my (laughs) younger brother. She was gone. I mean, Mm, she was... I'm going to uh, to ask you about that. She was mentally uh, ill for most of that. And my father, I mean, was English. (laughs)
1: But you still had to make conversation at dinner no. time. Oh, right,
2: dinner, yeah. It'd be entertaining. So what, your, your, how, in what way? What did you have to Well, you about? certainly didn't say anything I've just said tonight. This would have been an absolute end of end dinner. Um, so you didn't bring up anything awful. And, oh, man, I have written this uh, in a book that will never get published called uh, Drinking Games for Children Under 12. <laughs> And it won't get published because it really, it, I think has, I've just written it and I can't publish it. It's And it, I think, is written in response to my father dying. I loved him so much that I never, ever would have said to him in life, you bloody bastard, where the hell were you? Minimum requirement to show up here, here, and here. I mean, absolute, where were you? Um And I have, I think a woman in the audience are going to nod at this. I've confronted my mother. I think that's a lot more common. I mean, we take on our mothers because they're the ones who nurture us and they're less likely to say, bugger off for the rest of my life. I mean, I wouldn't put it past my mother, but for my father, I couldn't. I wanted him to go, and the last thing I said to him that I wanted him to hear was, thank you, I love you, forgive me. Because I know... In a weird way, I disappointed him. Um, I wasn't what he... I think he would have been chuffed if I'd been a vet. A vet? (laughs) Yeah. Really anything but a writer. It was just... (laughs) He wasn't a little bit proud of you? I don't... On his deathbed, he said, how many bloody books have you written now? And I said, five. And... It's a long story. This really is a whole other book. He died in Budapest. And he kept saying, what am I doing in Budapest? I said, good question. He goes, am I here because of one of your books? And I said, you, you might be. Um, but he, ne- you know, he did say, I, uh, I, I could never have written even one book. I, don't, I think that might have been praised. But he was a tough guy, you know what I mean? He was a tough, tough man. And that, I think, listen, writing is tough and doing all this thinking and thinking about a whole cycle of violence that started in, for me when I was six and ended in Stellenbosch on a meditation mat when I was able to forgive that man because I could see fully the whole picture. I could see him as a little boy being told by his father, the bloody English, never trust them, hate them, and that somehow that stayed with him. How could it not have? And he had 26,000 reasons to hate every English man, woman, and child. Buried right here. And why did we not? I mean, this is, I think, where I'm stuck, is why were our narratives so incomplete? And I come back to an indigenous American writer, Leslie Marmon Silke, who says, I mean, the narrative is fine, but at some point, the only cure I know is a good ceremony. And, you know, I think, again, the woman in the audience nod because I think you get to a certain age as a woman where you say, I've had all the grief, I've mopped all the tears, I've taken all I can, and you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to light a candle and burn my bloody bra." You just that for a start, as a ceremony. You know, I think there is a point where you realize I, there's always almost no more I can say. But what can
1: I do?: Some people would more, need more than a candle to burn their brows, they need a torch <laughs> flame.: <clears throat> Alexandra, I'm sorry, but I'm going to return to something difficult. Because this How is Did what we ever leave? <laughs> no. I really feel that... This, <clears throat> this for me should have
2: been three glasses of wine minimum to have to sit through this, I think, is what you should have had to have.
1: But this for me is so much the, the, the core of the book, the emotional core of the book. Um, when Olivia dies, no one ever came right out and said... In the broad, broad light of the day, that I was was responsible for Olivia's death, and that Olivia's death made Mum go from a being a drunk, a fun drunk, to a crazy, sad drunk. And so I am also responsible for Mum's madness. No one ever came right out and said it in words and with pointing fingers. They didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is written from a child's perspective, and in um, cocktail. Uh, you you go back <sighs> hold on <laughs> and you tell the story from your mother's perspective yeah. mm-hmm. is that to make amends oh good question no I didn't think so but also I mean <laughs> it's, an, it's a huge enormous burden for a young child to carry right the burden of, of guilt right without being and that's where I That's where I find is the core of the emotional violence, the neglect, that that child is not supported. Right. The same with when when Richard, the baby brother, dies. Right.
2: No, I think that this is a very common problem for those of us who are raised here in Southern Africa, is there is... And I heard this, too, when I went out onto indigenous American land among the Lakota. He said, you know, the way we die now and the carelessness and the violence that we die with, there isn't time to do our proper ceremony. We used to have proper ceremony for the dead, and there was this way in which we knew how to grieve. And I think somewhere along the line, white British settlers lost that. I don't think the African. Hey, you know what? There's a poem in Cocktail Hour, Under the Tree of Forgetfulness, written in Afrikaans, that I had to get someone here to translate, it's so beautiful. But he talks about the little grave, you know, the hasty little grave, and as you're moving, I mean, this was, I think, one of the things we lost in our culture was the length and the right and the kind of proper way, the tradition of showing each other how we grieve, because we were so busy, I think, fighting, um, and we were so under siege. Um, And so when my siblings died, you know, there wasn't time uh, for us to stop ever, and I think the core of the emotional violence wasn't that it happened, people die, it's that again, I keep coming back to this, we didn't have a conversation about what did happen and we didn't get the context for it. And so we took the violence personally Mm. and it wasn't meant personally. Mm. And that's why, weirdly, I think it took me coming back to Stellenbosch to finally, I'm going to sound weirder and weirder. Someone's going to, I don't know how I could sound more weird, so I might as well just carry on. But I climbed Stellenboschberg here, this mountain you have, which is so beautiful. Um, to the top and on the way down, and I have it, the most beautiful heart of rock, rock heart, which I keep on my meditation mat. And for me, what that said is, you know, um, if you're going to be a memoirist, it's important that you don't weaponize your biography, that you don't use it as an assault, but use it that doesn't, I mean, use it responsibly. That doesn't mean you get to skip out and not talk about stuff. But it means it has to be bigger than the, the picture, you know. And so on the small picture, yes, an irresponsible parent and, and my sister drowned. And I felt forever responsible, not just for that, but then that burden of responsibility that we all had, I think, growing up. Under, in the Bush War, which is that we were told explicitly, these boys and men are going off to fight for you. I mean, that doesn't leave you a lie. You, you cannot whine under those circumstances. You know, when the imperative is so strong on the other side, that look, so what does things happen to you? But on the other side, there's always a bigger catastrophe. And I think that's true for the stories of so many Southern Africans of all races that, you know, I know that the people who I went to school with, my best friend from Zambia, um, when I had my oldest daughter Sarah in Zambia, we were also burying my best friend's sister from HIV AIDS, from AIDS. And so, you know, those of us who grew up in that time too, this what was one bloody catastrophe after the other. So, so to sit there and have a full-blown funeral every time something went on, I mean, I Wasn't just, it?
1: There wasn't time.
2: There really wasn't the time. And now, I mean, I was... A, I don't even... I mean, I, when I went to the States, I met a woman who had a funeral because... And, and this is awful to say, was that she had a miscarriage and she had a funeral. I kept asking her, well... But... Because I couldn't conceive that... Oh...
1: It warranted a funeral. It, yeah,
2: we, I, my, I think our emotions got so stunted. Um, and that's why I was so appalled when I got a diagnosis of PTSD. I was like, good, great, now I'm with the bloody wimps. I'm going to be with the kids in the. You know, where they had to put you in the special classroom. I'm going to be there with the pet therapy dog. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the shame, I think, of our childhood, was we were expected to endure all of this. Not great constitutions, because we're all inbred as hell. The only thing more inbred than us were the Jack Russells. (laughs) And then, you know, you get this biography that you're supposed to be the lucky ones, and it's not. It's you have been uh, this violent narrative. um...
1: After the baby's death... You see, I, I keep I keep coming back to this because it resonates for me. You say your mother began to swim away from you, um, and that she would surface occasionally for months at a time, mm-hmm. but the threat that she'd recede from you again was always there. And then, in leaving before the rains come, the third memoir you. you um, you say, I watched my mother go mad. Afterward, when I tried to put a time on it, I would have said her mind left her when I was around 11. And she did not conjure or well it back in a robust and enduring way until I was in my late 20s. Mm. But my mother's absence wasn't anything like a solid... Wash out. It was drier than that, more as if an internal current had shorted and, and flickering outage would occur only to suddenly trip on again. And in those times, as if to make up for her gone days, my mother was a prism of creative clarity, compassionate, witty, capable, and fierce. I could feel myself slipping into the deep grooves of her influence, her passion for books, her appreciation for art, her addiction to the BBC, and love of dogs. Now, this, this, um, this, the way your mother is is portrayed here in the third memoir, how does this compare to the way she's she's portrayed in the first book? And that's interesting for me. The whole, the whole, progression in a sense of how you, you 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 portray your mother. One does not get the sense in the first book of you know, um compassionate certainly not. Ha. Huh. Certainly not. Witty, maybe, capable, fierce, yes. Yeah, so how I, come <coughs> how come the shift? Can you I, explain that? A I little mean bit? I
2: think age and I think that as you get older, you see things, you realize, God, okay, that was her version of being kind. It didn't look like it from a child's point of view, I think, because she was always having to fight. I mean, she was a fighter. There wasn't, I mean, that is something that uh, became very clear to me as I grew older, and I am, I'm a good writer, I'm I'm very great to take on assignment. National Geographic loved it. If they couldn't find anyone more crazy than me to send on the assignment, they sent me. Like the farthest reaches of wherever you will never come back from with 11 extreme baguilero cowboys in Chile, and you might not eat for a week, and there's only... Uh, Argentinian tobacco, fine. <laughs> Sign me up for a month, you and did I that. think yes, because I think that my mother gave me this. I just didn't whine, and it's been great. It, it honestly, if you are an employer and you're like, you're going to hire someone, your number one question should be, were you raised by someone who was mentally ill and had an Uzi submachine gun? And if the answer is yes, you should either definitely hire them because they'll tolerate anything or definitely don't, because they'll be a bit bonkers. It's it's one of the two. But, you know, she, I think what I was able to see once I was doing my own life was, yeah, I don't whine, I'm competent, quite tough, I'm resilient, I'm prepared to get, yeah, I'll come back, you know, I'll bounce back. But I didn't know how to love. No idea. And then I realized, where, where the hell would I have learned that from? Really, where and from whom would I have learned? What, if you say I love you to someone, my husband was always complaining, I would say it, and then go off to Chile with 11 cowboys. (laughs) And uh, I didn't understand that, oh, someone needs to explain to you, love means you behave in these uh, certain ways you're consistently kind, you show up. I mean, I never had a mother that did that. I don't know why she could turn on this amazing compassion and then disappear. And I suspect it was um, something to do with being raised in East Africa when she was. I imagine there was an enormous amount of benign neglect. And you know, we all joke about it and have another drink, but I do think there is a way in which I didn't learn to love. And it wasn't, a problem. And I mean, of course, it's a bloody problem, but it was the biggest problem was I hadn't really learned what that looked like if I turned it on myself. This is where I suspect all Southern African audiences to yawn and go to sleep. Because my mother said this is why she suspects Americans write memoirs so that they can then go on the Oprah Winfrey show and talk about how they weren't hugged enough as children. But, you know, I think that there was something in that, and I used to really envy these big close families I would see where there was a lot of hugging. And I know, you know, we all had them in our childhood, and they were usually not... In fact, I can't think of one of those households that was English. They were all Afrikaans, where I remember there being a lot... I wanted to be Afrikaans, honestly, because I wanted someone's cook sister recipe. And I loved how if you went in there, there was this way in which it always looked like there was one more baby on the way, you know? It was just it was going to be okay. And I don't know how anyone coped, because there were always so many children to feed, and there would always be a dozen more suddenly appear from under God knows what carpet. But I loved that, and I think... There was love there, and I—I I, that for me, I think, was the hardest thing, was to look back and go, oh, you know, okay, it didn't feel like love when I was little, but from an adult, given who my mother was, that was love. Were you ever, ever
1: envious of the dogs?
2: Oh, well, yeah. My sister and I joke about that all the time. Yeah. If the dogs died, that's it. my mother takes to the bed for two weeks, but if we were like houseplants, like, you know, she would feed us and water us occasionally, chat a little bit, you know, maybe sing you a song, pull the dead bits off.
1: That she that's, did read to you. And she read, yeah. like you That's very to important, and blood. that's what I want yeah. to ask you. I want You became a writer. Your mother read. You yeah. say that you read your way through your mom's library. What was your mom's contribution to your becoming a writer?
2: Ha! <clears throat> she told the man that I live with now, I'm scared of getting married again, uh, She told him, Bobo plagiarized every word of that book. I'm like, no, that if I wrote the book, I plagiarized it. You didn't write it. She goes, Don't let's go to the dogs tonight. She goes, it was all my stories, all of it. And, you know, I think in a way it was that she's a fantastic storyteller. And so, I mean, I don't, does anyone here have like that love for books? It, her, she will act, there's no earthquakes where she lives, thank goodness, but that's how she would die, just avalanche of books. And I think it was a way, in a funny sort of way, it must have been an early coping mechanism that became, I think, a way that she escaped, and she showed us that escape route. And for me, though, literature was a finding place, not a losing place. Um, Jeanette Winterston writes about that that for me. Where I found literature was when I found Alan Payton, you know, Cry the Beloved Country, and when I found Breitenbach, when I found other white settlers who were writing about their experience of being both in love with this land and terrified of the violence that they were witnessing and participating in and being voyeurs of, and that for me was when I thought, oh, thank God, someone's explaining this. Because my mom was, is really all about the escapist literature, lots of Beatrix Potter. I was so disappointed when I got to England and the bloody hedgehogs didn't talk. I, was...
1: <laughs> I Just before we go on to this, I, 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 I just want to read one more paragraph, the last Christmas It's a Christmas and the, labors, the laborers are already drunk. We are supposed to be holding a proper English Christmas lunch at noon for our house guests and various neighbors. The electricity is out. Adamson, the, the houseman, has been passing out beers to everyone who comes up to the back door. He's crouched over a fire he has made on the back veranda and is roasting the Christmas goose. though he is almost too drunk to crouch without toppling headlong into the flames. The only thing that seems to keep him a reasonable distance from the fire is his anxiety not to catch the end of his enormous newspaper roll joint on fire. He rocks and swings and sings. Everyone within a 30-mile radius of our farm is drunk." Except our freshly arrived guests, uncomfortably pressed into place, polite in new Christmas dresses and ties, throat clearing at the sitting room door. Mum, mud splattered and cheerfully sloshed, is determined to inject the Christmas cake with more brandy before its appearance after the goose. Dad is in a worryingly deep alcoholic coma. His lipstick is smudged. His snores are throaty and deep and roll into the sitting room from a bedroom section. It is long afternoon when the goose is cooked, by which time our Christmas guests are drunk too. <laughs> One has fallen asleep on the, on the pile okay, of, of carpet. We wear Christmas hats and share gin from another watermelon porcupine. We eat goose and lamb, potatoes, beans, and squash, all rich with a taste of wood smoke. Adamson is asleep against a pillow on the black veranda. The rain blows in occasionally and licks him wildly wet. Right then, the Christmas cake, of course, pudding. The Christmas pudding. You can tell what happened when it set alight. It has so much brandy that it explodes. <laughs> yeah, quite amazing, actually.
2: Okay, there very hilarious childhood and places. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, um, I did this. I encourage you guys to take this because it'll shock you. It's called the, um, oh, God, ad, oh, ACE. It's this Adverse Childhood Something Experiences Test, right? There's 18 questions, and I, my partner's from Michigan. He grew up on a dairy farm, poor bastard. So cherry pie, choked on cherry pie, I ask him 18 questions. He gets zero. Zero bloody points. Nothing happened to him. Bad. till he was like 42. I take it, I answer like 12 correct questions. And yes, yep, that happened. Yep, saw that, did that. Yep, that might have been the case. And then I read what happens to you if you score, you know, more than three or something. Like, barely... <laughs> And I am 1,220% more likely to commit suicide. I'm like, this is, I'm like dead three generations ago. I am so screwed. Anyway, luckily I read the small print. And it says, one of the resiliences, (laughs) you might make it if you have more than three of these 18, which I have like 12, uh, if you have a sense of humor. (laughs) And I think that's what saved us, is although stuff was going down, and it happened. I mean, there was this way. My father was funny till he died. Till he died, he was funny. He was still cracking jokes, not to the nurses. He was terrible to the nurses. They were all Hungarian, but in the morning, they would tell me some English words my father had said, and I was like, I won't translate. But he was very, very funny and robust and vigorous, and I think that's you know, you don't come out of your childhood for free, but if you come out of it with the tools that you're given, man, it is it's an incredible gift.
1: And good genes. I had shit genes. No, no, you have survivor genes. I'm mad genes. I do, man. I well, go you, you, you 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 can use that as a writer. A writer can can can, can work oh, with mad genes. God, it worries me, yeah. We don't have much time, and I still want the audience to have a chance to, to, to ask a question. Maybe if you can briefly just say your first your first fiction book, your first novel, and in an interview with Helen Moffat, you say that this is actually your most <laughs> autobiographical book. Yeah. Maybe just quickly, because I want to give the audience an um, opportunity of asking <clears> a question. So
2: for 17 years, I wrote for National Geographic, and I kept begging them to send me on to indigenous land. <clears throat> and they just sent me here. I did a story for National Geographic called Mandela's Children. And it was eye opening because the same template that exists here, that exists in Zimbabwe, and exists in the state, these tribal reservation lands, and the same sort of template of. Uh, the Americans do not want to hear what I have to say. But it just was so. They don't want to hear to what you have to say. No. Why? Not because now you start to say. Oh, guess what, guys? Oh, so oh, you yes. know what? It's very much like South Africa. And they go, oh, you don't know. Yeah. And I go, well, that's really weird because I've been both places and you haven't. So I do know. And it's, it's this, you know, Americans do not want to face their own genocidal history, let alone their own deep, deep. I mean, uh, talk about uh, dishonest racial past. And South Africa comes in for a lot of blame, but you can get off the airport. You can start at customs if you want to, having a conversation about race in South Africa, and the person will engage you. You can do it with a taxi driver. You, can do, you know, an audience in the States wouldn't have sat through what you sit through. The whole bloody lot would have got up and left. The moment you're not being entertained in America, that's it, you're done. No one wants to talk about it. And that, for me, is why we've arrived at the moment we're at, because we were literally ended up with a bloody TV reality show. As a president, you get where you're looking, man. And that's where we were headed. Now, this, for me, <clears throat> the same... It's like Alan Patton says over and over and over. The indigenous wisdom, I mean, when you get out there onto the reservations, of course, when a culture has been that ruined. I mean, imagine you came to Stellenbosch and just said to everyone here, listen... And next time you play rugby, everyone in the town gets exterminated. Also, yeah, swallow this. We're going to take away. You can't anymore speak Afrikaans. You have to speak Lakota. I know you've never heard it before, but it's the language for you. And we're going to shave your heads and put you in boarding school, and nothing you ever know about yourself, that'll all be banished. Oh, why are you not doing so well? I mean, that's essentially what happened to the Lakota. Religion, language, everything, tradition, I mean, their food, 11 million bison were killed. Can you imagine the spiritual trauma of watching that kind of genocide against wildlife? And I mean, it happened here, and the Americans love to point out what white settlers did in Africa, and ignore (laughs) what is still going on, the the broken treaties that remain in the states. And I think it is part of the current affliction there. and I loved being on the res. I loved it. My God, everyone's, it's such a mess. I mean, truly, it's such a mess. It is so dark and so much spirituality. It felt, it resonated. You know. I felt How many helped. reserves are there? There's hundreds of um, indigenous reservations, but the really big one, uh, the Sioux Nation, broadly speaking, um, is in the Dakotas. So the Lakota, the Dakota, the Teton, uh, the Arapaho, the Shoshone. So the... Native Americans around where I live, um, the reservations are big because, you know, we forget, too, that the Indian Wars have not been over that long. I mean, the Indian Wars were over in 1895. The Boer War was over not that long after that. Like, this history, we know, it's, it's not that buried, but there is an impulse in the States. Oh, they want to race to the repair. They want to race to the bit where we all singing Kumbaya and we're fine. And we are all on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and that's not going to happen that way. And South Africa knows that. And I think that's what makes me, as an immigrant in America, a bit of a thorny writer because I keep saying, you know, I'm allowed, Ma. I've seen. I've seen distance is helpful. So how
1: has this book been received?
2: Critically, really well. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. Never know how. I never look at my numbers. God, I think I'd faint. I think that'd be very unhealthy for a writer, trying to figure out how many copies you've... I mean, I think seriously, if a novel these days, you could photocopy it and give it away and more people would read it. Than but it critically got, I think, well-received. I mean, there was, and I think it's a legitimate uh, conversation about appropriation. Is it... I mean, what is a white... British settler from Zimbabwe by way of America doing writing about the indigenous uh, population. But what I was really trying to do is cast light on what it seems to me white settlers in America can't see. It's as if they don't have eyes to see. They don't even know what land they're standing on. I mean, if you ask an American, whose land is there's no clue? No idea of what came before yesterday. And it is a problem. It's a very hungry way of living. It means you're never satisfied. You don't have roots. You know, you've got nothing to draw from. And again, I think that's my, um, the, my uh, jealousy of, of the Afrikaans families I saw growing around me. They had roots. Um, being English, I didn't feel like we had that. Um, and so for me, going as an immigrant, it would make sense that I would go to the Lakota, where, where the roots roots are, because the cowboys, they just got there last week as well. They, I mean, you know, they didn't. They are on and on about, oh, I've been here generations, you start asking. Well, seriously, and you people either got, like, have a history of teenage pregnancies or you've only been here three generations because you haven't been here that long.
1: Um, Can somebody tell me how much time we have? Questions? Good. Right.
3: I don't have so much as a question. I want to make a couple of statements and then I have a tiny weenie question. When I first at random picked your book, your first one, off the shelf and I started reading it and I thought to myself this woman is a fraud an absolutely complete fraud because she's talking about my family <gasps> my uncle was the black sheep of the family he moved to Umtali and he married my Scottish aunt and they drank too much they never had any money the children seemed to be a bit neglected according to my grandfather and she stole my family story and then I continued reading, oh. and then my, she mentioned my man, family. Man,
2: Stellenbosch is too much for me, you guys, man. It's all coming in
3: Okay, here. I'll stop oh. there. No, it's okay. But then I realized you were not a fraud, okay? Mm-hmm. And I th- I'm going to skip 20 years. I worked extensively in Zambia, and the very first night I went there, I met a railway engineer from Rhodesia, And I didn't know him, so I asked him about his family, and he said, no, he's got two children, but his wife left when they were small, and she went back to Scotland, and they've lost touch. And I thought, this is rather strange. And the next day, another girl, the company rented a car to, or a Land Rover to drive me down to Livingston, started chatting to the girl. Her mother was Scottish. Her father was an Afrikaan Boer, farming in Zambia. And I said, so what... Anyway, the long of the story is, when she was six years old, her mother packed up one day and left her father with three children to go back to Scotland. There's a Scottish thing here. Never to be heard from again. So, I think your story is a bit of a reflection of what happened in families in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think your mother... Was one of those who stuck. Yes, she did. And didn't go back to Scotland and, or in England or wherever she came from. Kenya, uh,
2: lo- she came from Kenya. Oh, well, you know, it was
3: north anyway. <laughs>
2: yeah. I love the logic of South Africa. North, north
3: of the Limpopo, it's is relative. Existing. It was north. And she kept touch. She, she stuck. Like my family, they all drank too much. The children was a bit dysfunctional, but they're all happy. I love the roundup, but you know, we're all fine now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
3: Somebody else also wanted to
2: talk. Another question? Uh, that was so crazy. It's, I'm not a fraud, thank God it's here. Yeah. I see so that there's well. another hand over there.
0: Uh, uh, <clears throat> I really enjoyed reading your book about the dogs. Um, I just have, pardon my ignorance, but I would like to know what happened in in 1905, because I don't know.
2: Oh, well, no, I don't know either, I'm talking about the Boer War and how that stayed in our uh, it's absolutely something we could not talk about as English speakers. Oh, and yeah, but that's
0: earlier because that's ...1899 yes, uh, yes. to 1902. Oh, yes. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what Sorry. you were talking yes. about. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. yes. So, yeah, no wonder
2: you were confused. Yeah, Thank yeah, yeah. You. And I think, you know, what was so strange was it was a huge part of my mother's childhood that I didn't realize until I sat down and interviewed her. And she said, no, her whole area had been settled by people displaced by the Boer War who went to Eldoret, Kenya. And <clears throat> again, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. It was an effort to walk to the top of Berg. I cannot imagine going. I mean, what people endured and left behind and lost on these treks, on these huge Massive human migrations. I mean, slavery was one great big thing. And then all the internal movements since then. And that continued, you know, in the Congo and places of unrest. And I know what it did to us to be that itinerant, that peripatetic. I think it's a trauma, all this rootlessness. So I'm glad my mother's stuck-ish around.
1: Uh, there seems to be another question here. Look, I'm quite sure it wasn't easy growing up in your house, but having read Cocktail Hour, the feeling I got was of unconditional love of your mother. You loved her warts and all, and she was a magnificent woman. Because I am glad of your mother that my daughters could see there are other women who stay up till three o'clock keeping boyfriends talking and drinking (laughs) gin and whatever because that's what we do.
3: (laughs) Oh
2: my gosh, only in South Africa that my books used as a Mother's Day reverse gift.
0: I love it. (laughs) Anybody else?
3: Yeah, everybody's
0: wondering. Come on.
3: I just wanted to know which time with your most memorable The ones in um, Rhodesia or the ones in Zambia?
2: Wow, you know, that's such a good question, because the part that's been the most, maybe this is true for everyone, the hardest part for me to, um, I think stories are like threads, and the hardest part for me to pull out what happened was the bit in Zimbabwe. But it's also so much of my life. It's my whole education. I mean, although my parents moved to Zambia and then Malawi, I stayed on in boarding school in Zimbabwe. I, I just want, I think she must be dead by now. But did anyone ever have a Latin teacher called Mrs. Fryer? Anyone else? Because <laughs> if she exists, I have some stuff I need to say to her. Because no. I have not recovered from that. This, and so very much, I think, I feel Zimbabwean, like I have a Zimbabwean sense of humor, When I get back to Zimbabwe, I'm like, oh, I don't have to explain myself. My accent quickly gets much more Zimbabwean. But where I found my deepest peace, where I, you know, was my happiest, where I have, and I was so happy, I remember saying to myself, I must remember this. I will never, ever be this happy again, was on that farm in Makushi in Zambia.
1: Yeah. So, what a, what, just quickly, when, when was that and what age was that? 16 until
2: I was married. Okay. Yeah, and I would have married the farm if it had been an option. That just would have been. Yay. Okay,
1: hey, yes. right. Thank you. Thank, Thanks you.
2: Thanks, thank you. thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: I will let for almost say that Alexandra's books is the cupboard in the bookwinkel. More, um, let's uh, don't let's go to the dogs tonight. It's dark, quiet until the thaw. Um, true forgetfulness, all day, prachtige boeken, dat is to koop. Thanks so much. Bye. Dog.